Well, the last session has arrived, so it looks like I'm the rear end of this conference. Since I'm the caboose, I'd like to do something differently and think more broadly about the complicated situation so many archaeological and heritage projects find themselves in today. How do we integrate the communities in which we work into our site management planning in meaningful, sustainable ways? And why should we? While this group has been meeting in Amman, this week in New York, the UN's General Assembly is poised to enshrine a new set of 15-year sustainable development goals. To a great extent, sustainability and community have been buzzwords justifying or idealizing almost any type of cross-cultural intervention. Gilbert Rist and others have illustrated how the idea of sustainability has in fact been an outgrowth of several decades of middling results in global, national, and local development schemes. Meanwhile, I suspect, the growing academic emphasis on community is at least something of a response to one, a focus on identity politics so often ending in individual uh, impasse, and two, our continuing postmodern moment where values are suspect and Boulrelliard's meta-narratives remain long gone. Community, we cry, highlighting the positive connotation of the war word as warm, embracing, and belonging. Sustainability, we emphasize. Let's make this project last. Yet the globe is littered with endeavors of all types that fail to live up to the lofty language we use to justify them and to find funding from transnational agencies which themselves are constrained to operate under the language du jour to justify their expenses to donor states. Archaeological projects are no exception. But in those quiet moments, when we're both honest with ourselves and still savvy to the world around us, the uncomfortable truth is that despite all the rhetoric and in spite of all the funding and in spite of all the experiments and innovation and hand-wringing, it remains a struggle to plan and engender sustainable community-based projects. Victories are few and far between. Told less often are the stories of construction not just because critique is easy, but also because stories of success only occur once in a great while. So the Riss and William Easterlies of the world, the provocateurs, wonder whether we should just bag the whole charade. As they see it, if it isn't working, why do we even use ideas like sustainability and community to orient our work? Witnessing so many failures, it is, is it past time for something else entirely? or even nothing at all? Both fair questions. An alternative way of grappling with this problem is to redefine sustainability and community with a qualifier. For whom? As in, for whom are our projects sustainable? For which community or communities do they exist? When for whom becomes our magnifying glass, as it were, a whole new world is revealed. And although archaeological and although archaeologists have looked into the lens many times before, oh, sorry, for when for whom becomes our magnifying glass, as it were, a whole new world is revealed. And although archaeologists have looked into the lens many times before, even today, what they see is rarely pretty. Besides, it's hard out there for an archaeologist. Dowdy has effectively outlined how political frailty and economic insecurity are major contextual factors influencing the discipline today. When we look closer at sustainability, we often find that the existing system, 
system, especially within academic but also the aid world, might just be most suitable for grantors and grant writers and receivers. At first, this seems counterintuitive because all grants end, right? But in fact, a concluded project becomes the means to find and justify the next project. And even if work stops in the community, a scholar has previously invested it. Given that there's pressure from various angles to keep trying new things, to innovate, it's most often the community that's left behind as a scholar or agency moves on to the next problematic or new horizon. Likewise for community. The community has benefits, the community that benefits most in a traditionally scholarly enterprise, even if it has indigenous or descendant or local components, is often the relevant academic one. New knowledge is produced, which may or may not have a significant impact on the discipline as a whole. If a project goes well, agencies and scholarly careers are made. But if that project, collaborative or otherwise, eventually falls apart in an outsider-insider partnership, it's relatively rare that the instigators actually suffer the consequences. They, we, sigh, it couldn't be helped and move on. In the end, the underlying structures and incentives aren't always directly aligned with the intent we give our projects when using the word sustainability and community. Most are well aware that that's the world we live in. So what can we do about it? Rather than give up entirely, we can start by getting more comfortable with the fact that as outsiders, in a simple sense of being non-local, we not, we not only don't have the answers, but that we should not necessarily aim to be in control of the entire process. Control is the sticking point, and it's a complex issue. Most scholars, and probably to a lesser extent funders or policy analysts, recognize that answers, and even the pertinent questions, evolve over time. But we spend enormous amounts of time determining how and where we're going to look for those questions and answers. And we go to great lengths to protect our ability to do so, even justifying ownership under particularly Western moral language of free speech and scholarly independence. On the ground, however, if communities don't have an active role in decision-making, then how can projects reach conclusions that relate to them? Scholars and change agents need not entirely cede their expertise, nor is it ridiculous for people to be motivated at least in part by the sense of doing good. Similar thoughts are mentioned quite regularly. Somehow we still often end up with somewhat, somewhat naive in our expectations or unwilling to relinquish some of our cherished autonomy in favor of bringing in new voices or alternative perspectives, or even decide not to get involved in the first place. Well, we're halfway through this talk in our session, Umel Jamal, A Success Story, which means I should probably stop being so pessimistic and start talking about success at Umel Jamal. So back to our first question. What are the things to keep in mind when aiming to integrate communities in site management planning? Of course, it's worth noting that every project will face its own challenges. Given that people attending this conference are working in diverse sites all over the region, my aim here is to operate on the level of formative principles used for translation into appropriate strategies and tactics in each specific context. 
Well, we don't have all the answers, and most importantly, the main point is to remain open in question, methodology, and answers all at once. Here are some of the things we've learned so far in our work on the Um Umal Jamal project. Many of them were not easy lessons, and we're still evolving every day. One, our work should be anthropological. Anthropology offers a unique set of tools to help understand and participate in community life. More broadly, we focus on getting to know human beings in their context over a long-term basis. Archaeologists and agencies are often anthropological on an anecdotal level, but it needs to be more systematic. Two, thinking deeply about justice is crucial. Taking justice Taking justice seriously is necessary to engage communities on their terms, not just ours. And this means not just on a tit-for-tat, 50-50 basis that may, that may reinforce existing power structures, but from a Rawlsian sense of distribution, emphasizing equality for those who have it least. It should also be noted here that it's popular to see rights as a zero-sum today, especially in rapidly changing societies. But that's a fundamental mistake of logic. Rights or participation enable for <clears throat> rights or participation enable for new const con uh, constituents don't deny existing rights. It strengthens the whole system. Three, partnership is fundamental. Colonialist and nationalist attitudes have been deeply tied to both scholarship and the concept of development, which itself is entangled in the nation state. However, we need to acknowledge that while both still exist and are in tension, neither framework is adequate in today's globalizing world. International research and action needs to approach from a hybrid perspective that seeks out new cross-cultural modes of communication and inquiry that transcend these entrenched paradigms. Long term, we need to push not just our own projects, but development, and promote funding models reflecting hybridity. More, more immediately, in a complex context, multiple layers of expertise are required to be successful. And this also includes recognizing community members and local leaders outside traditional skill sets and credentializing systems. Four, training is emphasized. Training should be foregrounded, especially in under-resourced areas. Many projects ignore the very real gaps in capabilities and resources, as well as potential contributors available within the communities. Instead, a commitment to partnership and justice means being willing to invest time and funding locally. Over time, developing local expertise contributes not just to the project's sustainability, but to the community's vitality. Five, education and outreach are dialogic processes. Following the above, education becomes a conversation rather than one-way dissemination of knowledge. Critically, this dialogue is not just among scholars, funders, and policy experts, but includes the community itself as well as other publics. So is Um El Jamal a success story? <clears throat> That's for others to judge. But I will say one of the things all of us on the UJ project are humbled and continually challenged by is that we are doing our best to take this approach seriously, even as we readily admit we don't always get it right. It is challenging to think long term, 
to focus on partnerships, build relationships, invest in training, and educate in dialogue on top of the myriad considerations archaeological projects already face. Ultimately, our aim is that work being done now and over the coming years will be evaluated positively by a subsequent generation of community members at Um El Jamal. I hope someday, when they're grown, Mwafak's daughters and son think we did well. By way of conclusion, I'd like to briefly return to the question of for whom, and why archaeologists, conservationists, and heritage specialists should care to integrate communities into their site management planning. One answer, which has become fashionable in recent years, and not necessarily in a bad way, is to suggest that archaeologists must be more aware of the indigenous, descendant, and other local populations connected to their work. Because in the post-colonial context of survival, our disciplines depends on maintaining access to sites. It's a cynical world, and self-interest generally makes for persuasive arguments. Yet in this case, it's not enough because it still focuses almost exclusively on archaeologists themselves than others connected to their work. Out of necessity, projects are often run from a minimalist mindset. The guiding principles suggested here rely not just on obligation, but a more expansive commitment to human flourishing that recognizes something significant, namely, that new, important, and otherwise impossible contributions will be made by bringing underrepresented or previously ignored communities into our work and plans. Yet, while positivist, this approach isn't simply idealistic. Cross-cultural encounters, anthropologist Anna Singh notes, often generate friction. And this friction isn't always a bad thing, because it enables new ways of seeing and doing. Hence, we might say that given the right set of underlying conditions, i.e. principles, this friction can generate new fires to warm us all. Our goal with the Um El Jamal project is to create the best possible outcomes despite real-world limitations. Because we've learned, if we've learned anything from the past decades in the overlapping worlds of archaeology, heritage, and community development, it's that only the best work withstands the vicissitudes of time. And that is the very definition of sustainability. In the end, perhaps we best protect the past when we ensure a meaningful, historically engaged future, not just for sites, but in conjunction with all of the people connected to them. Thank you. <laughs>